0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 in our home city of New York. And that goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to welcome you to Assault Talk with Congressman Brendan F. Boyle. Congressman Boyle was born and raised in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, He's the son of an immigrant and Congressman Boyle's father was a janitor for SEPTA and his mother uh, was a school crossing guard. The first in his family to attend college, he attended the University of Notre Dame and later graduated from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government with a master's degree in public policy. He was elected to the Pennsylvania State Legislature in 2008, becoming the first Democrat to ever represent his legislative district. Two years later, his brother Kevin was also elected to the state legislature, making them the first first brothers to serve together in the state house. In 2014, Congressman Boyle pulled off an upset uh, in beating three better funded rivals to be elected to the United States Congress. Now in his fourth term, Congressman Boyle represents the second congressional district of Pennsylvania, which is fully enclosed within the city of Philadelphia. He currently serves on the House Ways and Means Committee and on the Select Revenue Subcommittee and Trade Subcommittee thereof. He also serves as the vice chair of the House Committee on the Budget He previously served on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Committee on Oversight and Government. Congressman Boyle also serves as a member of the United States delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Congressman Boyle is the founder and co-chair of the Blue Collar Caucus, which advocates for working families by addressing wage stagnation, job insecurity, and the future of work. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. But with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. So
1: Congressman, it's a big honor to have you on. I've got so many different questions for you, but I think the most important one for right now is your background. Tell us about your background. Why did you make a decision to go into public service?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm a, a Anyone who follows me on Twitter and knows my fandom for all the Philly sports teams knows that I, I am a Philly guy through and through. Um, I, I'm born and raised in a in a row home in uh, in one of Philly's typical blue collar neighborhoods. Uh, my dad came from Ireland when when he was 19. Spent most of of uh, his uh, adult life working blue collar jobs in a, a warehouse in South Philly, and then later as a janitor. For uh, our city subway system, and my mom was a, a stay-at-home mom, but also worked part-time as as a crossing guard. So I mean, I know it sounds, you know, almost uh, stereotypical, but really their American dream was work hard, have stable jobs, send their kids to college, and and I've been able to uh, be fortunate and and live that. Um, now, in terms of how running for office,
1: yeah, I'm I'm going to stop you for a second because. Yeah. It's an amazing story. It's a classic American story. I remind everybody it's an immigrant story. And you and I are products of an immigration story. But to be a public servant is a tremendous amount of sacrifice. Obviously, you know, I could only do it for 11 days before I was ejected. But here you are. You've made a great career of it. And it's coming with a lot of sacrifice to your family. So go ahead. Tell us why.
2: Yeah. So I, so for, from as early as I can remember, um, and, and this really does link, I, you might identify with a lot of this, Anthony, it really does come from growing up in a household that the American dream was gospel. I mean, we had two religions. We were Catholic and we believed in the American dream. And and both were held up as as you know, almost like religious faiths, right? I mean, one obviously is, but then the, the, the absolute firm belief, in America that you can do anything, that is work hard, you can get ahead, we're sacrificing for you. That, I never even stopped and questioned that. It was just accepted as a fact, like two plus two equals four is, is a fact. Um, so public service you know, plays into that, right? I mean, it goes along with it. Um, and then specifically for me, as early as I can remember, I, I loved politics and I loved sports and, and I followed them both uh, very closely when I went to college, I would then major in, in government. Um, but funny enough, I, you know, as I was graduating from college and this was the boom economy of the, of the 1990s, um, I was, you know, questioning, you know, how realistic it is me coming from where I come from actually running for office? How do you even go about that? I didn't know anyone, uh, literally didn't know anyone who, who was in politics, so I went the you know the normal uh, business route, did that for a couple of years. Really didn't feel too fulfilled, and then right around the time of September 11th, actually the afternoon of September 11th, I decided that this was the the course that I wanted to take uh, with my life.
1: Super admirable. I uh, I appreciate your service to the country. I know how hard these things are. You re. Recently, co-sponsored the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act alongside of Senator Warren. Why do you think a wealth tax is the best approach to solving the inequality?
2: Yeah, so so let me back up um, for a second because, or well, I'll say the, the the morning I did that, that afternoon I ran into a a good friend of mine, a, a colleague, is more of you know a a, a moderate Democrat, and he and I work together and, and agree on a lot, and you know he was joking or half joking, half serious. I said, "Boy, what the hell happened to you? Become a socialist now? And, and the answer is no. I, I firmly believe in capitalism. I believe capitalism is the economic system that best goes with liberal democracy. Um, that said, if you look at our tax system right now, it actually asks a lot out of wage earners, particularly upper middle class wage earners that live in very wealthy metro areas, New York, San Francisco, Philadelphia, etc. So the folks were you know doing well by no but are by no means Warren Buffett or maybe are making half a million dollars a year and are living, you know, right outside New York City. When you factor it all up, federal, state, local, etc., they're probably paying an effective tax rate of close to 50%. And yet then when you talk about people worth hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of dollars, who mostly have passive income, they can game the system in such a way that their annual tax bill is literally zero or close to it. I mean, one classic example, I think Carl Icahn uh, even talks about this, the way he simply he makes sure every year he doesn't necessarily realize the gain, borrows against the paper gains, And right there, you have no tax liability. In fact, you have a a deduction with the the low amount of interest that you're paying. So what I'm saying is, hey, our tax system is actually screwed up. It's too skewed. And this might be a slightly different argument than, say, like an Elizabeth Warren would would make. Um, But in my view, we actually need to move closer to more of a hybrid system that, wait a minute, we're missing a whole bunch of, what, in reality, is income and is wealth that isn't getting taxed. And yet we're asking a lot out of middle-class people and and even upper middle-class people. So that's one reason for it. The other reason is the more obvious one. And I say this as someone who, again, firmly believes in the American dream, but believes that the way in which we're going with this wealth gap and inequality, especially over the last 20, 25 years, is downright scary and threatens the stability of our democracy. And I do think there's actually uh, a link, I wanna be careful here, it's not a straight link, but there is somewhat of a link between the overall decline of the size of the middle class over the last couple decades and the sort of political instability and division that we're seeing in our country.
1: So, There's a lot. There's a lot to chew on there. So let's break it down together. So uh, 1913, we develop an income basis to our taxation, not an asset basis. Uh, Why do you think we did an income basis uh, as opposed to an asset basis?
2: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I would ask. uh, You know, have to go back and ask Woodrow Wilson historians on exactly why that was. Of course, there was precedent for it back to the the Civil War. Um, uh, in terms of going on an income basis. But I would also point out that um, it's not entirely true that we don't ever tax wealth in this country. For instance, I mean, I'm sitting in a small office in my house, I pay a wealth tax, except we don't call it the wealth tax, we call it a property tax, right? And actually that's even sort of worse because I'm, I end up like most homeowners, end up having to pay a property tax, not based on my equity in the house, because we, my wife and I are still paying off our mortgage. We're actually paying you know, a property tax rate based on the top line figure, right? What is the assessed value of the house? Some states uh, have automobile taxes and other sorts of um, property or asset-based taxes. So even though you know we started the income tax system in 1913, it's not entirely the case that we strictly only have a hundred percent income tax based system.
1: So I'm 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 with you intellectually on a lot of things. I'm not like one of these uh, hedge funders that's uh, anti-tax. I'm never moving to Miami. Love Miami. Interviewed uh, Mayor Francis Mayor Francis Suarez on our show here. Love Miami. One of my children lives in Miami, but I'm a New Yorker. I'm going to be here. I'm going to pay my taxes here. I'm going to do everything I can help our city. Um, And I'm a big believer that uh, blue states is something I argued with President Trump about when him and I had a relationship. By removing the SALT deduction, you're misunderstanding what happens in these blue states. Philadelphia is a port city. New York, Boston, these are port cities. They're teeming with immigrants. Many of them are indigent. You need a welfare safety net, a safety net for these people. You also need to create a platform of equal opportunity for these people despite the economic variances. And so I understand the need for all these things intellectually. And I would make the argument these great cities, in addition to the cities on the West Coast, the cities drive the entire economy. So if yeah. you want to cripple or hamper those cities, what ends up happening is you create a negative effect on the rest of the country. And so this whole blue state, red state divide, very damaging for the country. But I also think we have a blow to government, Brendan. And I think we have a explosive deficit. This this would be an indictment of both parties for that matter. I, you know, we we let me give you the facts. You know them. Seven trillion from George Washington to George Bush, 22 trillion from Barack Obama to Joe Biden. And obviously there was an eight trillion dollar four-year moment in there with Donald Trump. So so how do we I get it. I get the taxation issues. but how do we stop or contain the overpromising of government and the lack of taxation? Because all of this stuff is is just either unfunded tax liability going forward, or we're going to devalue our currency and make it harder and harder for the people that you and I grew up with.
2: Yeah, so so a couple things um, there, first, just on on immigrants, I'd poured out that contrary to what the expectations were, both New York City and Philadelphia grew much more than, than were expected. All the naysayers were saying they were either going to lose population or a stagnant growth. Census just came out, showed both ended up growing far more than was expected. And the reason was because of immigrants and, and immigration, which is no surprise. That's how both cities, both cities grew up. So it shows you, and by the way, how many times has New York been counted out? In, in the history of what essentially in many ways is, is the capital of the world. New York is never dead it will always come back and I think it, the census uh, figures were just um, the, the latest evidence of that Now now in terms of uh, deficit and debt I, I you know this is a, an interesting intellectual conversation that that's happening right now um, because admittedly there is no I'll be very frank, There is no political party um, that uh, has a room or has much of a uh, base for folks focusing on reducing the deficit and and reducing the debt. Donald Trump changed our politics in in many ways. That's actually one underappreciated way in which he changed the Republican Party. Um, Now, Before the Republican Party would talk a good game, they would never live up to it on deficit and debt. But now they don't even really talk about it uh, anymore. And then, of course, you know, my party believes in government, believes that in taking advantage of historic opportunities to to do certain things on the social safety net. So the sort of rightly or wrongly, the sort of Jerry Ford type republicanism is is not there. Now, what's interesting to it to me is and, you know, there's this uh, there's a school of thought out there saying, wait a minute. Deficits, I mean, even Dick Cheney, actually, when he was vice president, famously said, deficits don't matter. There's an economic school of thought out there that, that is talking about that. Um, as long as people in the world continue to have such full faith in um, the, uh, the assets in the United States and our economy and are continuing to buy our bonds as a kind of a fleet of safety and we continue to have interest rates as low as, as they are, I don't think you are gonna see either side really talk much about deficit and debt. What I think it will take is any sort of, and I'm not cheering for this by any means, but I think what it would take is a dramatic increase in our interest rates for then one or both parties to finally be talking about this in, in a meaningful way.
1: And I and I, listen, I respect, all of that as well. And I uh, we had Stephanie Kelton on. Yeah. She's a modern monetary theorist. She wrote a great book about this. Uh, and uh, I'm worried, though. I have to confess this because uh, I'm trained as an economist, and I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood, and I can prove empirically to Stephanie or you, Congressman, or Senator Warren, that when we create deficit spending, there is a benefit to it, and there's a good modulation. To the <coughs> I have elements of Keynesian thought in my personality, but we got to be very, very careful about dollar devaluation because people that own the assets uh, they will get richer and richer as we're devaluing. But the middle and lower class, the wages don't catch up. And so, I'll give you this example: My dad was a crane operator. Uh, I priced his wages, uh, contemporarized them. Uh, he would be down 26.5% in real economic terms. So even though the wages did creep up over 35 years, the purchasing power is nowhere near uh, where we were as children. You know, My family would have gone from what I would call blue-collar aspirational economics to blue-collar desperational economics. And a lot of this is a result of this sort of uh, money corrupting, if you will. Uh, But Okay, we're there, but you want to tax the wealth, and I I understand that, but I really want to just get my arms around the idea. So if I have, let's say, $100 million, um, you tax it at the market rate, you tax it the way your property is taxed, where they're guessing at what it is, and they say, okay, you're going to pay this as an annual surcharge for the money that you've accumulated over your life. Um, One argument would be, though, wait a minute, Brendan, I, or Congressman, I, I made the money, I, you know, you, you paid me a dollar, I paid 50 cents to Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo and Joe Biden, I got to keep 50 cents for myself. And then I invested that 50 cents, and I happened to invest it quite wisely, I could have spent it, you know, this is sort of a prodigal son dilemma from the uh, New Testament, Uh, but I decided not to spend it. I would also say to you that it's not in my, the money's not in $100 bills in my swimming pool. It's being invested to create jobs and opportunity and innovation in the society. I'm delaying my own gratification in order to do that. And you're going to penalize me now. Uh, Again, I I already got taxed on the front end, uh, income-based tax, made the money, paid my tax. I've now got it in savings. You're going to tax me again. And you say, yes, it's appropriate to do that because.
2: Yeah, so a couple things on, on mechanics. Um, our system would be similar to the four European countries that, that currently do this. It would also be similar to the sort of system we already have now at death, what we call the estate tax, or sometimes Republicans you know, call the uh, mislabeled the death tax. We already have that infrastructure in place, right? So we're not, again, this is not something where we're talking about creating something that doesn't already by and large exist. Except instead of it being a one time event at death, we're talking about doing it in an annualized way, although at a significantly lower rate, we're talking about two cents on every dollar above a 50 million dollar exemption. Frankly, I mean, you know, the kind of folks that that, you know, who might have uh, wealth more than 50 million dollars, even if this were to happen, all of them would be wealthier year after year, even if they were to pay this. There's not one of them who was making a return of, of lower than, than 2% in, uh, in any given year. You also, uh, you threw in there an assumption that we're increasingly seeing is not necessarily the case. And I mean, look, the argument on double taxation, I get it. In, in principle, that is correct. However, Let's remember, per what I was saying earlier, some of this wealth has actually never been taxed the first time. So that's that's in there too, right? I mean, that is one of the real flaws. And whether it's the ProPublica articles or other sort of public reporting that we've been seeing, there are a number of ways in which the system is being gamed to evade that taxation. Let me, to stop, before to our, let me yeah. stop
1: before our listeners to explain that. I think it's a very interesting point. It hasn't been taxed because... It was in what stock of a company that got started and that value was created from? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah.
2: So, I mean, i sorry. What I'm alluding to is ProPublica has done a series of exposes over the last several months. Uh, I I don't know how they've gotten this this information. To be clear, um, but they have uh, done remarkable reporting. On a number of very wealthy individuals, Jeff Bezos is one of them, but folks who have been getting away with paying a zero tax bill, and for the most part, it seems legally. Um, you know, we're not talking about someone, uh, you know, making mm-hmm. forty thousand in tips and writing down ten thousand. I mean, we're talking about legally gaming the system so that they have a zero tax bill. And, and yeah. so when I t- you look. Uh, if you go around Northeast Philly, where I'm from, or, or parts of Queens in New York, and you talk to folks who are uh, like the people, like our families or that we grew up with, they have a rock solid belief, whether Democrat or Republican. They say, you know what? I know the system is screwing me. I know the guy who's in the very, forget top 1%, the top one half of one tenth of 1%. I know he's getting away with bloody murder and not paying anything. Meanwhile, here I am paying federal income tax. It's all being withheld from my paycheck, FICA, state, local. You know, I'm getting taxed the wazoo. And yet the really big guys are getting away with paying basically nothing. As long as that exists, that not only is that unfair economically and, and we're missing a lot of tax revenue, um, it feeds the sort of cynicism that we're seeing about government that you kind of referenced earlier and I think is a major problem that we're facing in society. The sort of cynicism that we're seeing, the declining belief in the American dream, all of that goes into what we're talking about with what seems like trust a dollars and cents conversation is not. It's actually bigger than just the money.
1: Okay, we're gonna move on. I could talk all day to you, Brendan. So uh, Congressman Boyle, I I appreciate it. So we can move on. I just, uh, just asking these questions because we both know tax policy influences behavior, which does have an effect on the economy. And again, I'm not suggesting that we don't have issues in the tax policy and that there's been rank unfairness that needs to be addressed. I just wanna do it in a way that obviously promotes growth in the society. So we're going to go rapid fire on a couple of other things, if you don't mind. Okay, let's go. Let's go to gun control. Uh, Too many special interests to do anything on gun reform and gun control to stop this sort of uh, this mutilation of our children? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's sickening, Um,
2: you know, generally over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, you see anywhere from 70 to not depending on the measure that is being questioned in the poll. You generally see somewhere between 70 and 90% of the American people who support some sort of gun control, whether it's background checks, whether it's a a bit more aggressive than that, like banning, you know, the AR-15. Along that spectrum, though, again, very solid majority support, and yet it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because that one third that disagrees, historically, that has been their number one big issue. And they have voted on it. I mean, there's a difference between preference and intensity, right? So the, the two-thirds to 90% of people who might want gun control care about a whole host of other issues. But that one-third or even less that cares about gun rights is so hardcore, they'll take, you know, they'll take that, that NRA list to the polls with them in a Republican primary and vote strictly on that issue. Now, what's interesting is that in 2018, after mass shooting, after mass shooting, it's really the first time in, in our lifetime that I saw the politics of that change, especially in suburban America. So in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, um, in the suburbs of New York, suburbs of Chicago, you saw Republican members losing their seats, both for Congress, but also state legislative seats. And they were getting hit on, on the gun issue, the, the, the um, you know gun safety side or gun control side was really um, bringing up this issue in an offensive way, not a defensive way. So that leaves me um, optimistic that we will finally join the rest of the civilized world and having some sort of stronger uh, gun measures. I do for the first, and it's funny, we do this interview before the last few years, I would have been really pessimistic uh, on, on this question about whether or not I would see things change. The last couple of years, First time you've actually seen the politics of that now flip.
1: Okay, so but but I, I guess what I'm getting at is, 70% of the country maybe more would like some type of reform, but we've got these special interests creating these blockages. And of yeah, course, well, both it, know about the procedures in the Senate and what they end up doing as well.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, when when uh, this like a lot of issues, this gets back to uh, the, the F word filibuster, yeah. um, because, you know, Manchin to me when he pushed that, when they both pushed that one, is a Republican senator from my state, the other a Democratic senator from neighboring uh, West Virginia. When they pushed that, I think they got 57 votes. Um, mm-hmm. But because of the filibuster, uh, you know, the, the 57 lost and the four low, low 40s carried mm-hmm. the day. Yeah. Um, I think if they, you know, we passed out of the House universal background checks and, and some other measures uh, in the Senate, that would have majority support every Democrat. And, and I think anywhere from, you know, five to seven Republican senators supporting it, depending on the specific measure. But again, it, it, that's one of a whole host of issues that the question is okay, what are you really going to do about the filibuster? And if you keep the filibuster exactly as it is, it's hard for me, unfortunately, to see a, a meaningful change in our gun laws happen um, between now and, and the end of this session of Congress.
1: All right. We're going to whip through. I- I infrastructure, Bill. You like it. You don't like it.
2: L- Love it. Love it. This is um, something that I've been pushing for a long time. Uh, you know, Coming from an older state, we would benefit from it more than most places. You know, Pretty much if you're anywhere in the Northeast, that's the case. And I actually something I was totally wrong about. I, I did an interview on CNN, uh, maybe you know, a few days after the presidential election in 2016, and you know, I was very vocally anti-Trump. And so the interviewer said, "Well, look, you know, you're a Democratic congressman. Uh, sounds like you won't agree with Trump on anything. Can you name one thing then that you could see uh, agreeing with him on and voting for?" I immediately said infrastructure. And the part that I was wrong is my prediction was given the kind of campaign he had run in 2016, because economically he was the first Republican since before Reagan who took some, you know, very uncharacteristic uncharacteristic positions. And frankly, I think that was one of the reasons why he won uh, in in 2016, what he was talking about on entitlements, the way he was talking about infrastructure. I mean, if you remember, uh, you, you know, you're part of the campaign, Trump brilliantly in 2016 would campaign in Pennsylvania Ripping Hillary for not being pro-spending on infrastructure enough. It was a completely uncharacteristic, uh, you know, critique from a Republican candidate. So my prediction was that he would lead off with infrastructure. I said that there are a number of Democrats who work well with organized labor, who come from areas that really want those jobs. Um, There are a number of us who, despite, you know, the fact we might oppose Trump on X, Y, and Z. We would work with him and vote for it, and you know why. In the end, he didn't do that. I think was was uh, one of his worst political mistakes.
1: Well, I mean, one of the reasons is Paul Ryan and Wrights previous and those guys convinced him otherwise. uh, But he, his instincts were to go in that direction. Um, Let's. Are you vaccinated? I am. Yeah, I I
2: was fortunate to be uh, among the first. Um, I actually got my second, uh, I have the Pfizer shot. I got my second shot, um, about 24 hours after the Capitol insurrection. Uh, I, I would not, uh, I would not recommend doing that when you haven't had sleep, uh, for, for the previous 48 hours. Um, but that said, you know, I thank God I'm vaccinated. My wife is, and we both have a seven-year-old who of course is not vaccinated. So we're two of the parents who are just really, um, candidly, very nervous about the, the start of school.
1: There's a uh, lot, lots of misinformation out there about the vaccine. Um, I know perhaps you may not be able to opine about this. And, and if you can, I'm just looking for an opinion. The FDA, should the FDA approve the vaccine? Do you think there should be vaccine mandates in the country? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I Flat out you know,
2: vaccine mandates aren't anything new. Um, Certainly, you know, when when we went to to school and the college, we had a whole host of vaccinations.
1: Your your seven-year-old has a vaccination record and he needs that vaccination record to cross into the school he's about to enter in September. So, yeah. But this is, you know, you talked
2: way back in the beginning, you talked about Facebook. This is a way in which, you know, I grew up in the 80s and Frankly, there wasn't much difference in the way I consume media as a kid in the '80s, and say folks growing up in the '50s and '60s did. Right? You had the three big networks. Forget Fox don't, News; was Don't it pick even Fox. on us.
1: That grew up in the '60s. Okay, don't pick on us, Brendan.
2: <laughs> oh, you know. you're all right. You're you're a good bit older than I was, so you're a little bit like me. People think you're you're a lot younger. I take it than than maybe the chronological well, age.
1: I've got to go full Joan Rivers on you before this interview's <laughs> over. I will. OK, I want to make sure you know that. Well, so,
2: but what I was going to say is that the reason why I bring this up is because this is a, a this is a great way in which the change in the way we consume media is really influencing this tragic debate about vaccinations and all these kind of crazy conspiracies. Because if you grew up in 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there were three big networks. Basically all of us, whether Democrat or Republican, uh, consumed our media the same way. Three big networks, a couple newspapers in your town, same radio stations. But beginning with cable news in the 90s, and then the internet in, in the latter part of the 90s, once it went widespread, That enabled and then social media in, you know, around 2005 with Facebook. uh, Now we're in this very different environment in which we have self-selected news. And so, you know, I have a uh, a close friend who's able to go on Facebook and is reading articles with all sorts of uh, nonsense about uh, what's in the vaccine previous era that sort of misinformation would not have been able to be spread in the same way and and that's um uh, very dangerous
1: a couple of my close friends uh jonathan greenblatt uh with the jewish defense league and kevin o'leary debated whether or not the taliban should be allowed on twitter what are your thoughts about that
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I, first, I, I haven't, you know, specifically uh, thought of, uh, uh, of that aspect, but my view, um, and this kind of is, is similar to some others. If you're using a, uh, social media platform to inspire violence or cause violence, you don't have some inherent right to use that platform.
1: Okay. Well, uh, so a, that I, you, know, look, you, you and I are probably closer and, in- I mean, I'm not I'm not with you to be candid on the wealth tax only because that money, I think, is sometimes misunderstood in the society. It's in the society working to create jobs. I understand that people think there's an unfairness. We have to rectify the unfairness and there's ways to do it. I'm just not exactly sure how to do it. But you and me are in total agreement on this. I mean, we didn't have World War Two Nazi. Propaganda videos being shown in our movie theaters. Right. Because they have a right to have those things shown. So,
2: yeah, I I think people are fundamentally in the US are fundamentally misunderstanding what the First Amendment means and and what civil liberties mean. Um, And, you know, um, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I was probably then a lot more optimistic about the internet. And Well, God, social media didn't even exist yet. We didn't have that term, but basically everything that the internet could do and unlock. A couple decades later, when I see the effect it's had on our society, the impact it's had on our democracy, uh, I'm a lot less positive today than I was a couple decades ago
1: on that. Okay, we're going to let you go in a second here, but I want to talk about the bipartisan legislation, which is known as the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. It's a five year, two hundred and fifty billion dollar plan to help America compete with China on high tech infrastructure. Uh, I I think it's one of the more fabulous bills that I've seen in the last five years. And so are you did you vote yes on that bill? I'm assuming you you did. Yeah, I'm I'm a strong supporter of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this positively. I do
2: think that one of the rare areas of bipartisan consensus is all of us recognizing, frankly, just how evil the Chinese regime is. It is not uh, like the rest of us, and that's not a reflection on the people. Frankly, they suffer from it more than anyone else, but we really need to wake up. I mean, the idea, there now there had been you know, a school of thought maybe 20, 30 years ago that, well, once China opens up economically, once they uh, enact market reforms, democracy will naturally follow. That has flat out not happened. In fact, in some ways, it's been the opposite. You have U.S. stars, NBA stars, movie stars that are now feeling muzzled by the Chinese government and the sort of economic power that that they have. So I, I'm glad to see both parties um, getting tougher on China getting tougher when it comes to competing against them economically, recognizing that they are not our friend, um, and so uh, this is one of a number of uh, initiatives that are within that vein.
1: So uh, the democracy. This is my final couple of series of questions. You worried about our democracy, sir?
2: Yeah, I. I by nature, I'm an optimist, so I. My gut instinct is, is to say no and is to preach positively and evangelize about America. But I got to be honest, I, I am. And I mean, part of it is because of what I, I referenced earlier about the self-selected uh, way in which all of us are consuming our, our news and, and not even, you know, uh, on the same basic fact sheet. Um, something like January 6th, I, I, I never imagined I would ever see something like that in the United States of America. Um, uh, so I, I don't know how anyone could go through the last several years and, uh, and especially January 6th and be more optimistic about the, the state of our democracy. I still have faith that um, that we will get through it. We've gotten through previous eras before that looked very bad. So I'll still maintain that that faith, uh, but it is not uh, without worry.
1: My friend, I wish you the best. I know you're born on Ronald Reagan's birthday. Uh, he started out as a Democrat, if you'll recall. He ended up as a as a Republican. Uh, you know, you seem like you're somewhere in the middle. So it's, uh, it's fascinating and it's a lot of fun to talk to you. Hope we get a chance to meet in person. Uh, maybe we'll get you at one of our events someday when the Congress isn't in in session or maybe i can get down to philly and have a have a surprise beer with you
2: yeah i i, I would love that and whether it's you know out in the in-person salt talks or uh an eagles giants game uh one way or the other I look forward to getting together with you well i just
1: gotta you know i'm i'm a lifelong jet fan so I'm oh, in that's a lot better okay all yeah, right i I'm, I'm in permanent pain you know you have a uh, philly native by the name of hr mcmaster general nice. mcmaster and i are close personal friends We were arguing it out with Governor Christie the other night at dinner. Uh, Basically, you know, Christie's a Dallas Cowboy fan from New Jersey. What the hell is that? It's 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 incredible. I I,
2: my I saw Christie uh, on Amtrak once as I was commuting to D.C., Uh, introduced myself to him. And I said, you know, you might think the the reason why I, I so strongly oppose you is because I'm a Democrat. Because I'm an Eagles fan, how the hell are you a Cowboys fan, and yeah. especially coming from New Jersey? It's yeah, I mean it's a...
1: one. Th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> one thing: if you're like a Giants fan, you could respect it as a Philadelphian. I understand that, but yeah. uh, you know, but look, I'm a Met Jet fan, so you know, once in a while in that Catholic church, say a prayer for your friend Anthony. Okay, it's been it's been a brutal 50 years. Let's just put it that way.
2: You know, as a Philly sports fan, I, I can feel your pain. So, uh,
1: <laughs> all right, we'll Congress- look <laughs> forward. You be well. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you joining Salt Talks.
0: And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Congressman Brendan F. Boyle, uh, representing the, uh, the city of Philadelphia in the United States Congress. Uh, just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website, on demand at salt.org backslash talks, or uh, on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. On our website, we also have full transcriptions and links to our podcast version uh, of these videos as well. Uh, Please spread the word about these SALT Talks. We love educating people on a lot of the issues that Congressman Boyle spoke about today. Uh, we think he's a great representative for our country in Congress. So please tell your friends about uh, these SALT Talks. Uh, And follow us on social media. Twitter is where we're most active, at SALT Conference uh, on Twitter, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.